where the concept comes from but the concept of a cognitive load um yep. in gaming is it, it just it's just the the idea that everything that you put in um adds to the amount of effort that the player is having to go through in order to play your game and you need to make sure that it's worth it it's a cost benefit uh calculation Hi friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to James Baldwin, the creator and designer of Drowned Earth Miniatures game. Uh, we spent a good bit of time talking about his design process, how he goes about uh, creating a game and figuring out some of the mechanics as well as the theme. Uh, make sure you stick around to the end. He's got a fascinating new mini game coming out called Ulea Chronicles. It's currently on Kickstarter and what's neat about it is it's got solo and cooperative play. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today, we're going to get some insider insights from the creator of the Drowned Earth miniatures game, James Baldwin. Now, currently, he has another game on Kickstarter set in the same universe called Ulia Chronicles. So, James, welcome to the third floor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's, I'm excited to be here. Well, James, one of the first things we like to find out from somebody who's never been on the show before is kind of how did you get into this hobby? So how did you become a miniature gamer? Well, um, we have to go back uh, a good more than three decades um, <laughs> to, uh, I think there were two seminal, well, there were three seminal moments in, in my gaming life. One was um, uh, after coming back from primary school, aged seven uh, or thereabouts. I re- uh, primary school is not a term you guys use, but but just we know what you mean. the <laughs> age is probably, is probably the better thing. When you say grade whatever, I'm like, no idea what that means. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, my mum read me The Hobbit uh, while I oh, while wow. I was uh, eating uh, when I came back from school and had my tea. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know how long it went on for. Uh, she recorded it actually on on um, cassette tape, um, and God knows where that is now. Unfortunately, it's been it's been lost. But uh, that was that was number one. My introduction into what I call speculative fiction. Yeah. Um, and so step number two was not too long after that. Um, we were all, you know, approaching 10, 9, 10, 11. We were um, exchanging and swapping and handing around um, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, Choose Your Own Adventure, fighting fantasy novels. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but at some stage there's an advanced one, which is basically a soft entry into proper, um, uh, you know, Games Master versus Players um role-playing um 
and so that was that was step number two. This is a concept that I was fascinated. I don't remember us ever actually doing it. I think we still carried on reading the books, but I certainly read that <laughs> book and was and was captivated by the idea. Um, and then a little again, maybe a year, maybe two years. It's hard to remember. Um, the fighting fantasy novels turned into issues of White Dwarf magazine, um, and I'm, I'm talking about. One two three, one two eight. Um, you know the early thirties, that kind of thing, and uh, you know back when Marauder Miniatures were were a separate entity to Citadel. Um, and I, I I bought myself some Marauder Miniatures Dwarf Slayers, um, yeah. and uh, I, I've still got them uh, the originally painted uh, versions. Um, and a friend of mine as a Hanukkah present, he he got HeroQuest, um, oh, wow. and so we we could just about afford a couple of models with with our pocket money, but we couldn't play a proper game. Uh, and then obviously we were playing with with Dwarf Slayers in HeroQuest, uh, and back in the days when games workshop was was very you know cut out uh a tank and, and glue it together from a cereal yep. box uh kind of thing which which you um, would get in the white dwarf so they would have white dwarf that would like teach you how to make terrain out of cardboard and everything like that and you I, don't I see those never, you don't see that anymore in the magazine <laughs> yeah I'm, i unfortunately you don't i think there was a great joy in it the kind of uh, yep. what we call blue the blue peter approach there's a children's tv program where and it and here's one i made earlier where they they tell you how to make things out of out of loo roll and and cereal packets and candy floss you know at, yep. um and and you know it was just sort of going on from that sort of late 80s um ethos uh, and then yeah i just sort of went down the rabbit hole of of uh games workshop but also role play games and and i'd never i never actually played dnd until I suppose about four years ago, a friend of mine did some D and D at his stag party, uh, <laughs> and that was the first time. But I, I was playing um, Vampire the Masquerade and Cyberpunk and uh, uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the uh, second edition, um, and stuff like that. And then I got to about sixteen and decided that girls wouldn't like me if they realised I had painted little toy soldiers, um, and then went on a hiatus until I was about thirty when I realised that all I did was work all the time and I didn't have a yep. hobby and I decided that um gaming was going to be my hobby again um and it sort of got out of control after that it's funny I mean my story is very similar I didn't quite start quite as young as you did but that idea of this hiatus is something that I'm hearing a lot from different guests and I went through the same experience so like I played up till like mid high school and then kind of my, you know, it kind of drifted away and then just found it again, you know, in my early 30s and and kind of dove right back into it. And it's funny how you take that break. And I had the same thing, James, where, where it's just like all I do is work. Right. I, 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 I need something else, another outlet, another way to, you know, to, to use different parts of my brains. And uh, it was neat to come back full circle you know, to that, to that world itself. And you talk about a bigger circle. So my start is, is with role-playing around the same age you've discovered role-playing. And I have just found it again, like three months ago. And so I took a nice 25 year break, um, from it. And boy, now that I'm back doing role-playing again, I've been having a great time with it. I forgot how much I, playing? I loved it. We're playing, um, the fantasy flight, uh, star Wars, the, uh, edge of empire, yeah, and it's, yeah, I you really mentioned the, like that system. Oh, well, it, it's based off of the Warhammer fantasy yeah. role play with that narrative dice, which yeah. 
I mean, yeah. for an old dude like me that took 25 years off from role playing, everything was D6s and D10s and everything at target numbers. That concept of 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 the narrative dice and and the uh, the interplay between the player and the GM deciding how things really happen, like I, I am all in. I just think it's a, a really neat innovation. Yeah, and I think what's nice uh, about what they've done with that system is that there there are all kinds of uh, really obscure indie RPGs that experiment with that idea and 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 like no gm at all and and collaborative yeah. storytelling and stuff like that so recently uh i was playing a game called the sprawl um mm-hmm. which is the power it's the uh powered by the apocalypse system um and it's very much like that and i i actually i think it, for me it was a bridge too far because i felt there's an awful lot you kind of bank points and retcon um and you're you're allowed to and encouraged to retcon things that happen because you should be prepared and you're an expert and you might not be an expert, whatever your character is, but right. you, you know, they will be. And so that's allowed within the system. And what I found was, although it was a really interesting experience to sit around the table and just brainstorm ideas, I never felt fully immersed in the sessions. Um, but you're metagaming the, too much. Exactly. Exactly. There was that, there was always that, not always actually, there were a few really beautiful moments where you weren't, where you felt Mm -hmm. quite um, involved, but most of the time there was that distance. Uh, And in the Star Wars system, I think it's, it's controlled in a very nice way. Uh, And that neatly segues me onto if, if you back the Kickstarter for one pound, um, then um, you will get a, a free copy of a what I call a one uh, a one page, but actually it's one sheet, uh, one sheet, one shot RPG set in the Drowned Earth, uh, which is super simple. I mean, it's only two pages; <laughs> it has to be simple. Um, but it also has that same idea of of the collaboration uh, and, and encouraging. So there's a special. Uh, we use the same dice as the as the miniatures game because it makes sense. Um, sure. And when you roll that special symbol, you are encouraged to provide so you do something especially well and you are um invited to suggest to the gm what that is uh and likewise uh when bad things happen both the players and the gm are uh, encouraged to um have that kind of collaboration but in a more controlled way Uh, and that was definitely influenced by the by the star wars system i like it a lot very, very cool. So, guys, fans of the show know that I love talking to people that are in the gaming industry. Um, now, a few years ago, James made a huge splash with his game called Drowned Earth. It was a very successful Kickstarter. And unlike a lot of other Kickstarters out there, that the game still exists. It actually has shown legs, and I would imagine grown, because I was not aware of Drowned Earth when the click Kickstarter came out, but I keep hearing more and more rumbles about it. I've got more and more friends saying, Craig, you need to check this out. And uh, I would venture to guess probably one of the more popular indie indie games that are out there today. Um, so James, I'd like to first kind of get an idea of your transition. So you're a player, you enjoy playing role-playing games, you enjoy tabletop games, miniature games. At one point, does game design start tickling the back of your head? Well, um, so I mean, it's it's a famous quote, and I don't know who said it, but everybody's got at least one novel in them, and I and I and I don't feel like that's necessarily true, but I feel like everybody's got one creative um, achievement uh, of some kind 
in them. And I think a lot of us gamers, uh, while we're gaming we're, and, and we're interested in mechanics and we're interested in different ways of doing things and, and we sort of, uh, um, you know, armchair managers, you know, f- football managers, you know, sitting there discussing, um, you know, well, if I was um, uh, Arsene Wenger, you know, the, the, the manager of Manchester United or whatever, I wouldn't have made that choice. I'd have done right. it this way. Um, and gamers are the same. You know, lots of us, lots of us have these kinds of conversations with each other. Um, and at, there was a certain time where that begun to percolate into, no, I actually think I'm beginning to form my ideal vision of, of, of what my game, what my novel, what my creative achievement um, might look like. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a job and financial responsibilities and all of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't something that I was taking very seriously at that time. Um, and I was working on a couple of kind of, um, fan driven design projects for another game that existed, but was forgotten and neglected by a company who's, uh, more, more latterly, uh, revived it again, which, which is great news. But, um, I remember having to have conversations with the people that I was working with and and justifying what I thought were were fairly basic principles like the fact that some kind of balance is important in a game you know it doesn't (laughs) need to be perfectly balanced you don't need to make some kind of you don't need to design the life out of the thing um, and you're allowed to have some fun but but the idea that something shouldn't be so wildly unbalanced that that one player simply by choosing a particular faction has zero chance of ever winning like that's a bad thing you'd think that that was uh not something that you needed to have that conversation with. And there sort of came a point where I thought, you know, if, if this is, this is how I'm currently exploring this creative outlet and this desire to design. Um, and it's kind of hard work doing it with other people who, who don't share your, um, uh, your core ethos. So I then, in, uh, um, started to look again, part-time and again, while I was, while I was working and, you know, doing, doing, you know, all the things that life requires. Um, I began to look for people to collaborate with because I liked the idea of doing something with a group of people or at least one other person more than just doing it by myself. Um, and, um, you know, when that, I suppose I'll just, I suppose I'll just say it. People are unreliable. Uh, yeah. People have different <laughs> levels of commitment to the ideas. Yep. People set, find saying yes very easy, but actually following through much more difficult. And it and, became and keeping clear the to steam me. too, right? Yeah, and exactly. They might, be, might, might come in full, right? They come in full, full fludge right out of the beginning, and then you know they lose they, that tr- interest trails. That's tough. Yeah, and it's natural. And I think even even as as one person and it's only you, uh, it's difficult to maintain that enthusiasm yeah. and to follow through. Um, so you know, no no um, no hard feelings there. But I just found myself in a position where I thought, yeah, if I'm if I'm going to do anything like this, I'm just going to do it myself alone. So in that process, James, it, it, do you, did you like just have a couple of like premise ideas, like mechanics ideas and have, you know, a notebook that you kind of jotted it down. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start going, well, I think I've got the beginnings of a game here. Like, I, I guess I'm because we've all had those conversations, James. But some at some point you said, you know, wait a second, I, I, I'm on the brink of something new. 
Well, so I, I would say um, I'm probably more of an experience-led designer uh, than a mechanics-led uh, designer. And I, I came um, with a very clear idea of the kind of experience I want the I wanted the player to have. And then I, I, I looked around for <clears throat> the, uh, the mechanics, uh, you know, and, and the sort of um, rules way to execute that and to give that experience. Um, and so I arrived, you know, when I first started and it, and it definitely started off as a, um, a side project. It wasn't until I thought, you know what, I'm really, actually I'm onto something here that right. I thought, okay, so now I, I'm coming to the crossroads where I, I need to decide, am I going to really take this seriously um, or not? Um, and I decided to, but it was definitely after um, looking for the best ways to resolve some of the things that I thought were interesting and, and principally that didn't really exist already because there's not a great deal of point in making something that's already there. You yep. might you might cherry pick different ideas from different places, but you fuse them into something that's unique. So instead of instead of cherry picking and saying, I like this from this game, I like that from that game, it sounds to me like you were doing more finding gaps where you're saying, you know, I, I don't I, this is missing. This is missing. And I want to I want to solve for these. And that ended up forming kind of the structure. Yeah. And it, in other places, it was a case of saying, um, I like what this game is trying to do, but I don't think it does it as well. It's that's not its main focus, and it's not doing it as well um, as it, as my game could if I chose to make that a serious priority. Um, and one of those was the movement system, and 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 you know the uh, having a very very fluid way of running up a wall and jumping to another building in mid climb um and then carry on running and then in the whole in the middle of that whole thing shooting at someone uh, mm-hmm. and then having that person shoot back at the same time well those are a very complicated sequence of actions and 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 most games the reason why you don't end up doing things like that very often um is because they're usually pretty complicated to resolve and so for me one of my big design goals for the game was to build a very robust system of mechanics that would very easily and in a very streamlined way allow you to do lots of really cool stuff basically right so it sounds like you know having a fluid easy to resolve movement system was was a goal what were what were the other gaps you were trying to fill what were the kind of the idea goals going into this what um things you wanted wanted to fix things you saw as problems elsewhere that you did not want to see in your game well so i think um uh the the goals I gave myself really were that kind of parkour style of movement and a very cinematic experience where you, in fact, I can put it very, very simply. What I wanted to achieve was a game where at the end of it, the players went off to their friends and told them about the cool things that happened in their game without ever mentioning the dice, without ever mentioning any mechanics. They just told the story because the game was executing that cinematic 
cinematic experience well enough that it completely bypassed the mechanics and that's not what they were thinking about um and i'm pleased to say i'm, I'm actually really proud of it i'm not uh, uh, you know i've de- i have achieved that because that's definitely when you go to tournaments and people are playing and you sort of pretend you're reading something but actually you're eavesdropping <laughs> on their conversation they, that's what they do you know they they, yeah. they really don't talk too much about the mechanics and it's more about your massive uh, uh you know gorilla person leapt out of a building with his twin pistols um and in midair shot this other guy who was running across a rope bridge um and as he fell into the water uh got attacked by a giant piranha uh, you know, <laughs> and, um and so you know mission accomplished kind of thing um yes so just making sure that the mechanics didn't get in the way of the narrative and of the story does that sound right and And so the i think to make that kind of cinematic experience a reaction mechanic is is really essential um the idea of creating a game where both players are involved all of the time um so the the um the drowned earth is both alternate activation so uh, you you activate a model and then someone else does but it also has a reaction mechanic and so you don't have to wait very long for your turn but at the same time during somebody else's turn you're probably doing as much as they are Uh, and if you're not doing as much as they are their turn is going to be super quick so I, I've not played Drowned Earth yet. And like I said, I've been hearing so many good things about it. Um, and uh, you're quite a good little salesman. I like your, <laughs> I like everything you're saying. But um, what I'm hearing a little bit is is inf- some infinity, right? And yep. p- people that have listened to the show before know that I love the, I, I love the goals of infinity. I don't care for the game. I think the game fails on many, on many ways of trying to do what it achieved. And just on the reaction mechanic itself, did you look and see like something like Infinity and go, yeah, you know, I see what they're trying to do, but I, th- I think I can do better? Yeah, and actually, I mean, I, I would, so I played the second edition of Infinity when the English rulebook was still uh, really, really hard to uh, get to grips with, but just in terms of the language, not, not, not even in terms of how overwrought the rules are. Um, but, um, and, and I think, you know, that's, I, I say overwrought. They're overwrought for me and possibly right. for you as well. Um, Correct. I but think there's people that love it. So yeah, that's and, and for a lot of people, that's the selling point. That that real yep. intricacy of the rules is one of the big selling points for the game. So there's nothing there's nothing to be said against that. It's just a, it's just a matter of taste. But I felt that Infinity, as far as a reaction mechanic, I think that was the best executed one um, that I'd seen. The Drowned Earth reaction mechanic, uh, it's it's not uh, mechanically that similar well it is you've got a target number and you're rolling under the number but over your opponent so that's exactly the same we're rolling um 2d10 all of the time um you don't there's no concept of rolling multiple uh, no concept of a dice pool uh, for different uh, types of weapon and the two dice just correspond to two different levels of success and the levels of success both determine how far you can shoot and how much damage you do um and so the mechanic is quite different but it feels the same um as the infinity mechanic uh, the reaction mechanic at least i think very little um very little else about the game is is similar um but i think my problem with infinity was that uh, and, and not just infinity this was a general design um goal for the drowned earth because of a lot of different games i've i've played which do this to greater or lesser degrees but i think infinity might be the most egregious example of it um i don't want to 
spend two hours playing a game and spend an hour and 10 minutes looking through a rule book. Yep. Like that's rubbish. Like, that's not what yep. I'm there for. Um, and so I, I, I felt as though the reason why that's true in a lot of games is because there are too many exceptions to rules. There are too many special skills and the special skills that there are, rather than them being like Blood Bowl is a good example, uh, an example mm-hmm. of this done well. Um, there are quite a lot of skills in Blood Bowl, but the reason why they're easy to remember is that many, many of them are variations on a theme. Um, so you get a re-roll. And then this other skill, you get a re-roll and the mechanic is exactly the same, but you just get that re-roll in a different circumstance or on right. a different skill or, or, or on a different stat or something like that. And so all of those are really easy to remember. There might be 10 of them, but they are basically different variations on the same concept. Um, and so whatever there are, 30 or 40 different um, skills uh, are very easy to remember. Um, I don't think they are in Infinity and there, there are other games as well. And in Infinity in particular, I remember the, a really ridiculous situation where you've got, you've got, what is it? Martial arts level one, level two, level three, level four. So rather than that being the same thing in increasing <laughs> levels of effectiveness, they all do totally different things. Right. And then level three, you also get this other completely random skill that sounds nothing like what it actually is mechanically. Um, and it's just this kind of arcane, um, bizarre it reminded me of playing Battletech in the 80s where yes. you've got this huge tome that you're wading through and you've got these charts and actually there's something really lovely about that that kind of really archaic um, style of gaming where you've got you've got all of these lookup charts and what kind of damage have we done and roll on it and you yeah. know then check out the little boxes um, <laughs> I didn't get you know there's a joy to to that with Battletech that I didn't find with Infinity it just felt yeah. frustrating um, yeah yeah, it um that's got to be a tough balance. Um and and after the break we're going to talk a little bit more about the design process, but um so I, you know, I, I my primary game is Malifaux, um which is um I consider a modern rule set, but it is not a simple rule set. Yeah. Um and it, and it's a very intricate game. Um and you know, a game takes 3 three, four hours, depending on, you know, how are things going. Then my what has become my second game is Marvel Crisis Protocol. Which is is a very interesting design shift because, in many ways, uh, MCP is very streamlined. Uh, over, it simplifies a lot and does it, it, it sacrifices realism, quote unquote, or trying to mimic yeah. uh, rules, mimic life to just say, look, these are superheroes, and th- th- we're gonna we're gonna keep it simple. So and, it's, and quite, I would it's admit, sort of abstracted a lot of things. Very are much so. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's interesting to me, and and we'll get into it more after the break, but I'll be very interested to learn how you navigate that spectrum um, because I would imagine you're getting pulled. Through the process on that. So let's go ahead and take a break, James. We get back from the break. I want to talk about really what that process is like where you you go, you know, one direction, pull yourself back, you go another direction, pull yourself back, and, and how you end up at the end point. So we'll be right back. Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. 
anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So now that we kind of, you know, get a little bit of idea of, of, of the way James approached this and how he, you know, kind of decided, hey, you know, I, I want to take a shot at this. I want to learn um, one of the things that I find the most fascinating is, is that process of going from start to finish. So, James, let's go to where we were before the break, which is you have found some goals. You want something that's cinematic. You want something where the rules don't get in the way. You want something where it's about the feeling um, and the narrative that happens versus I, you know, on this table, I rolled this and I happened to get the 20 and that caused this to happen. Um, as you started going through this, can you give me an idea of kind of the first time that Drowned Earth hit the table and its very first version where you took all of these notes, all of these thoughts and 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 put the first set of proxy miniatures on the table and said, let's let's give this a run. What did that look like? Um, <laughs> it looked like, um, I mean, visually it looked awful. Uh, we, we found a whole <laughs> load of, uh, really, really old school. I can't even remember what it was called, but games workshop made in the nineties, a, a sort of gray polystyrene castle, um, which all sort of like squeezed together or fitted together. And, and if you bought three or four sets, you could do this like really elaborate thing, but it was really like super blocky. And because Drowned Earth's a game with where you really, um, uh, you, you find as you're teaching people because of the movement system uh, and because of the, uh, we encourage people to use multi, uh, multi-level scenery and walkways and you can do a lot of leaping and jumping and climbing and that kind of thing. There's a kind of eureka moment that you get as you're giving someone a demo where you can see them stop thinking in 2D um, and they start thinking in 3D. And so uh, that was definitely, that was another design aim to begin with, to have really interactive scenery that that made a really significant, they weren't just obstacles, uh, they were opportunities to navigate the battlefield. Um, And so um, first off, uh, I think the game was clunkier than it is now, but you don't. I, I guess you don't really notice that the first time you play. What what you're looking for is is this hitting the right spot? Is it doing what you want it to do? Um, and actually, it did in the larger part. But it did it in what I now think is a very overwrought way. And so it was a question of, okay, let's, let's, let's just, let's sketch this thing. Okay. Let's, let's don't worry about making it elegant or efficient or, um, or beautiful lines or anything like that. Just get what you want sketched out. Is it doing, you know, the, regardless of the uh, the mechanics inside, your input and your output, are they what you want it to be? Um, and if the answer is yes, then it's a question of refining and processing and working out more efficient ways to get the same effect and whether you need all of those rules to do the same thing and whether you can replace three rules with one better rule that 
that does the same thing and then working out oh that's a nice to have but at the end of the day I, I talk about this thing I don't I, I, I definitely didn't invent it but I couldn't tell you where the concept comes from but the concept of a cognitive load um, yep. in gaming it, it just it's just the the idea that everything that you put in um, adds to the amount of effort that the player is having to go through in order to play your game and you need to make sure that it's worth it it's a cost benefit uh, calculation um, and there's a whole load of things and I think I think something that um, designers um, do wrong particularly when they first start out uh, designing um, they try and cram everything in and they fall in love with their own ideas and particularly mm-hmm. the good uh, the good ideas still don't always belong it might be fantastic you can save it for a different game if it doesn't yeah. belong where you put it get rid of it and so when we start talking a little bit later about Elia Chronicles I'll come back to that point because um, that's something that that I think is really important working out what you're trying to achieve and working out and I don't think this is just uh, games I think it's designing anything everything should be pointing in the direction you want to go and everything that's in there should be achieving your goals um the goals that you've set out for yourself and if you've if your goals are good ones and and you made the right choices to begin with and you go through that process carefully and you do it well then you will end up with a good finished product so out of curiosity, if, let's say that I got the first handwritten copy of Drowned Earth in my hands, and then I've got the current rulebook for Drowned Earth. It, what, what survived the entire process? Was there something that was in the initial draft, the initial versions of Drowned Earth that, that still exists? What's something that, that either cha- didn't change at all or, or changed minimally? Or did everything change? Would they seem like two different games to me? Do you know, it's such a long time ago. And I also, it was in development for two years before I put it on Kickstarter. And, it, and that started off very slowly and, you know, the odd the odd evening, a couple of times a month. And then it turned into, you know, several times a week, uh, playtesting and writing and refining. And I don't remember exactly. I'm fairly sure that the reaction mechanic hasn't changed a great deal. Um, the, the dice mechanic... Uh, was tinkered with quite a lot um, in terms of thinking about, um, uh, you know, what what critical fails look like. And, you know, um, uh, but I'm pretty sure the dice mechanic has survived almost intact. Um, uh, things like how, how do you resolve ties? Those changed, um, you know, a, a number of different times. But the, the core was there. The movement... Um, became much more elegant. It started off um, as you know, doing doing what I was trying to do, which is which is find an easy way to do all of those things. But there were just there were um, different movement types, and you had to remember what the different movement types were. Um, and it occurred to me that there really doesn't need to be different movement types. All you need to um, so actually this doesn't make sense unless I really explain the, the movement mechanic. Um, if you, you have two movement values, you have two values for a lot of things. And generally what they pertain to is whether you have, uh, succeeded or whether you've succeeded especially well. Um, and that's basically whether you pass on one or two of the dice and you actually need to pass on them in a specific order. Um, you've got to pass on one before the other one matters. Um, gotcha. 
And so if you're, uh, so you have two movement values, a higher and a lower. Um, and if you are running along normally and not doing anything particularly complicated, you don't need to roll the dice for that. Uh, but you use the higher number. If you're swimming, originally you had to test for swimming and I got rid of that. Um, you can swim without testing, but you use the lower number. And if mm. you're doing anything like leaping or climbing, um, in fact, there was leaping, climbing, there, there were a, a number of different maneuvers uh, that you could do. Um, then you need to roll the dice and whether and how far you go just depends on which dice result you've got. So the lower or the higher. Um, and so you declare your movement, you roll the dice and you go as many inches as the dice roll allowed you to go. Interesting. Um, and so originally there were different ways of resolving the different types of movement and some special rules which dif dif um, which differentiated them from each other. And then I thought it, um, that's kind of in the way and doesn't need to be there. So now you can, um, you can run three inches to a wall, climb up it two inches, then leap two inches to another building and then keep on climbing. Um, and all you do to do that is you measure your movement path and you say, okay, well, that's seven. So my maximum move, my my what we call nailed it that's the better success you have passed and nailed it your past movement <laughs> is four your nailed it movement is seven if you nail it you move all seven and if you pass then you go along the movement path that you declared but you only go four inches along got it now we talked about that spectrum of from uh elegant, I'll say, to clunky, right? And and complicated to simple. And there's there's um, benefits as, as you go up and down that spectrum. And it sounded like you, you're really trying to simplify without losing, uh, you know, interest, right? Because if you get too simple, then it's, it's not interesting anymore. What part of Drowned Earth um, pulled you and tempted you the most to, to, to pull away from the simplicity. So if, if you look at the path you went through in that design process, which one tempted you the most to, to, to overdo or to overdesign? Uh, was it the movement or was there another aspect that that really you struggled with? Yeah, I think I think the movement um, was just a case of I, I worked out what I wanted to achieve and I thought of a way of doing it. And then I slowly whittled that down into into a really sleek, lean mechanic. Um, I think probably the the thing that, and I still struggle with it now, um, it's special skills. And so they're not specifically, they're not mechanics, um, uh, they're, they're not core mechanics, they're kind of tacked on mechanics. But but it's always tempting. You release a new model and you're like, oh, what what extra cool skills can we add to this model? And I, I do try to leave a post-it note on my proverbial, you know, bathroom mirror saying use ones that already exist wherever possible, only bring in yep. a new one if it matters and if it makes a difference and if it's important. Um, and one of the reasons you see a lot of games do it, you, they get rules bloat. Um, yep. And in order to keep the existing players interested, they make the game far less accessible for new players. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's a huge problem and it's a very difficult problem to resolve, I think. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I've got a firm answer other than be aware of the fact that that's a problem and, and try not to um, uh, try not to go too far down that road. Yeah, that's tough. It's really tough because um, you every company struggles with this. I've yet to play a miniature game that is more than a single release 
that has wave releases that that does not dance with that bloat devil. And it, the fact that um, I've yet to see a perfect solution to it, yeah, it tells you just how difficult that is. Yeah. Um, but having having that vision, uh, obviously, is is what what has to keep driving you forward um, in that process. Now, let's talk about thematic. So we we got we got a little bit in the design process. I, I want to understand the setting of Drowned Earth and when that came alive. So, at what point did these game ideas start to start to get a, a world, and where did that world come from? Um, I would say that maybe the world came first. Um, and, um, I think it's a fusion of basically, I, I sort of joke and it's partly a joke. It is a little bit true. Um, (laughs) that I just, I, I I was the coolest I've ever been when I was about nine and 10. Um, and so, you know, that kind of uninhibited child, not being embarrassed of being, uh, of liking things. Um, and actually you, you, uh, you get into your teenage years and you're mortified, um, (laughs) by that nine year old, uh, that you were, and then you get out of your teenage years and you're mortified by the teenager that you were the big stuffed yeah. shirt um and you 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 look back on your preteen uh, sort of uh, you know uh, likes and dislikes and think yeah i had it right then um yeah. and uh, you know there's i, I remember my uh, this is not gaming related at all but my mother loves to tell the story that my first desired profession you know what do you want to be little boy kind of thing i wanted to be a tap dancing detective uh, okay. <laughs> I think that's the too worst many crossover ever, and, and, and uh, Fred Astaire films or something. I don't know what she was bringing me up on on the, at that stage. I'm glad you but, got into uh, gaming and didn't go that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's uh, I, I when I was that age, I liked dinosaurs and jungle ruins and Indiana Jones uh, style stuff. Um, and I like Planet of the Apes and, you know, all of all of these other kinds of things. And, and I thought it was a sort of a cool bunch of things to add. But really the uh, um, the starting point for the world or probably the biggest influence to begin with, there's very little of it left um, other than just, I guess, some of the geography. Uh, but there's a, a 1960s British science fiction author called J.G. Ballard. Um, and if you've, if you've ever seen Empire of the Sun, uh, yep. that's actually the story of his childhood. Uh, he is, oh, he okay. is, um, oh, I've forgotten the actor's name. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a, f- a famous, uh, British actor. Um, but yeah, he's the, he's the little boy, J.G. Ballard. Interesting. Um, and, um, Christian Bale. Um, is the kid yeah. in uh, yeah. Empire of the Sun. Um, but yeah, he, he grew up to be a science fiction author and he wrote a book called The Drowned World. Um, and it's uh, a story. It's actually, I think it's probably set like 11 years ago in reality. <laughs> uh, you know, in the in the late 90s was the f- distant future. Um, the Blade Runner and, future. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, so he, uh, the, the story was, uh, he was way ahead of his time, you know, uh, melted ice caps and uh, risen sea levels uh, and hugely increased climate. Most of the planet was uh, bordering on uninhabitable um, and there was a colony in the Arctic uh, and a group of scientists had gone back to London um, which was now, like most of the cities of Europe, um, a, a, a network of lagoons 
um, wow. with a whole load of kind of, you know, um, iguana and reptiles and jungle plants and crocodiles and things like that. Um, and uh, it just struck me as a really, really cool environment and really it fired my imagination. And um, he talks in in the book about there's a kind of sort of semi-spiritual thing about people devolving, well, not spiritual, but, but um, sort of very cerebral people devolving back and having some kind of ancestral memory um, for this earlier uh, epoch. Um, and uh, all of the reptiles kind of, you know, uh, going back and, and sort of emulating their ancestors and, and, kind, uh, and that sort of thing. And it was, it's, a, it's a very good and interesting book. It's not particularly long. Um, I can thoroughly recommend it for any sci-fi readers um, out there. I mean, it's 1960s sci-fi, so it's, you know, it's, it's not um, crazy exciting or anything like that. Um, right. But it was definitely a very firm influence on um uh you know the, the the world that i was already imagining with kind of jungle ruins and, and that sort of thing so so that gives me kind of the feel for it and obviously for it to be uh, a war game there has to be conflict so give me an idea now that we got an idea of the setting w- w- what's the conflict why are people putting models on the table and and, and beating the hell out of each other so the the factions are actually they're not they're not sort of geographically or racially uh, defined they're vocationally defined. So you've got the um, uh, the gangster uh, organized crime faction, and then you've got the um, archaeologist uh, adventurer tomb raider faction. You've got the the town militia. Um, you've got the uh, bounty hunter stroke slave breakers. Um, and then you've got a, a, a true mercenary faction, and then in the new uh, um, in the new uh, uh, game, uh, which which has a lot of crossover, so the model ranges are shared. Um, we're bringing out a new faction for Drowned Earth as part of this uh, release oh, nice. as well, uh, and it's pirates. It had to be either pirates or ninjas. Um, <laughs> that was inevitable, so, yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. It was the it was the it was the piece of the pie that was missing from my nine year old enthusiasms. Um, so you've got. So you've got pirates, you've got um, Indiana Jones. Yep. So I think all that's left is zombies, right? Is that the only uh, thing? Yeah, that's the, yeah, dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, maybe the dinosaurs ate all the zombies already. They're, they're slow moving enough that they didn't they didn't last long. Um, but uh, yeah, the the conflict comes from the fact that we are. It's it's what I guess you could call post post apocalyptic. It's not, um, the apocalypse is not within living memory. No, nobody can remember even what happened. Um, but there's the evidence of this big science fiction globe spanning civilization where, you know, the, 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 um, everything's overgrown and collapsed and, you know, lots of vegetation and, and earth on top. Um, and, you know, every so often you see this spire sort of uh, stabbing out of the jungle um, canopy. Um, but people are now beginning after many hundreds of years of just trying to survive the terrifying predators that, that live in the jungle, which were all, you know, revived species from this uh, advanced civilization who found themselves in an environment which was much better suited to them than the one that they were originally brought into. Um, now people are coming together and making settlements and building towns and even cities um, and getting a, a little bit of sort of scientific innovation going. And they're searching the ruins for knowledge. 
And the conflict really is over how that knowledge is going to be used. Are people going to um, discover this new technology and and, and rediscover uh, things, you know, uh, both in terms of new scientific development or just finding artifacts which are still functioning um, and can be used as power sources. So there's there's a city called the Bridge, which basically spans um, a bay. Um, to uh, the enclosing portion of a bay and the town has been built on this old suspension bridge Um, and it's powered by uh, a power source that somebody found in the jungle the entire city um, has electricity and lights and and you know even sort of rudimentary wired telephones and things like that um, because of this you know, relic that they found that they, they don't know how it works. They've got no idea. Um, but they know when they plug it in, they get electricity out of it. Right. Um, and so um, there's the conflict that's going on is about whether we're going to use this knowledge to benefit everyone or whether we are going to try and be selfish and, and use it to control and gain kind of power and influence. So that's interesting to me. So now, now that we've got a feel for the process that you went through from a game design standpoint, how you did some world building, obviously they come together and the game, um, the final stage in the story of drowned earth, um, up to this point would be, you then decide I'm going to launch this thing. Um, and what I've always found fascinating is, is when do you stop? So you play test, you add, you, you write background, you design, you know, what you think the different factions and, and groups are going to be. But at some point you say, okay, pencils down, we're going to stop this right now. We're going to put this out there and we're going to, we're going to charge people money for it. Yeah. I'd like to get an idea from a design standpoint. When do you do that? Like, was there, did you, was it a time mark? Was it a design mark? Was it, you know, I'm now... Uh, like when does that happen? When do you say screw it? I'm putting it on Kickstarter. So I didn't. I didn't self-impose a deadline. I um, I waited until I felt like it was a good product, um, and then um, I mean that's one answer to your question. The other answer to your question um, is about a month before we went to print, uh, which is about six months after the Kickstarter. Um, because obviously I, I, you know, I sold it and, and, and it did very well and, and, uh, I was proud of it. And, uh, as I was, uh, putting the finishing touches on, I obviously saw opportunities to improve it and I didn't want right. to, uh, I didn't want to pass those opportunities up. And in particular, um, the rule book in terms of presentation and in terms of wording and in terms of the way that I explained things that changed a lot. The, the, the rules themselves didn't so much, but the, you know, there were, there was refinement and improvement. Um, I think it's important not to set yourself a deadline when something's in, um, in its infancy, uh, designing to a deadline is a bad idea. Um, when it comes to putting the, you know, that you've, you've got, you've got the groundwork laid and, and you're, you're basically, um, tidying everything up and improving it and making it as good as it can be. Then you obviously do need to set a deadline because you could carry on making it forever. Um, right. and it's still, even now that, you know, I play it or I hear, I read something and, and, you know, I think I can think of a better way to do that. Um, but 
I'm not an enormous fan uh, of games that constantly release new editions of themselves. Um, it feels a little bit like it's it's either it's one of two things: either you didn't do your job properly the first time around, or you're trying to milk the cash cow um, yep. and you're releasing new editions because it's an opportunity to to boost sales. Um, and I think a better way to do that is just to. Um, um, keep on making good things for the game that you've got and and that isn't to say that I will never come up with a second edition because there comes sure. a point I, I think particularly what we were talking about earlier with the rules bloat where actually you need to um, clarify um, and uh, uh, you know I think Malifaux did that um, they sure did. That's exactly what drove out of control, yep. and so they just they just hemmed it in and brought and brought it back. And uh, a few of my friends who play Infinity say that they were hoping that the N three rules were going to do that, but they just like doubled down on the complication um, ra- rather than sort of reining it in. Um, yeah. And so I feel like that's something that you can do. You can bring out a new edition um, to streamline what you've got and to condense it and to cut away some of the bloat um and then you know create a reset effectively um but uh generally i think that you it's a bad idea to design um with a deadline in mind um you'll you'll end up the deadline will become more important than the quality of the product um and that's no good when, as I said, though, when you're you're refining something and putting the finishing touches on it, you, you you need sometimes the best way is probably to have an arbitrary deadline where you're like, well, after I can't, I know really what I'm doing is tinkering, and after this point, I'm just not allowed to tinker anymore. Yep, yeah. At some point, you got to make the call, and and I would imagine, like you said, when 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 the changes become minute, um, at some point you got to stop, otherwise it never comes out, right? Um, well, that's good. So let's take another break, James. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit more about um, advice that we can offer. So <clears throat> as somebody who has gone through the process once, has has had a very successful self-published game, is now about to go through the process and finish up the second time doing this with a new game, um, I'd like to get an idea of um, things that you got right, mistakes that you made, things that you got, mistakes you made the first time that you think you got right this time. I'd like to give some advice for some people out there that um, are thinking of taking the same path. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. mats. 
So I've, um, because I do this podcast, I've gotten a, a chance to talk to, you know, a lot of people that have put out games and I've had conversations, you know, with people around the world that, um, have ideas and, and are thinking about this. And James, you're, you're unique because you've done it once and it was a success. You now are doing it again, um, and building off of that success, um, uh, with a, with a new game. And, and I would like to kind of get an idea of, um, the pit holes, uh, potholes that you stepped into, um, ones that you happen to avoid, things where uh, maybe you were right because you're a smart guy, things you were right because you just got lucky, um, and uh, things that you did this time that you didn't do last time. So I'm going to start off by phrasing it this way. Um, so how long ago uh, was it? How many years ago did Drowned Earth start? Where, when did the idea start to come fruition? Five years, ten years ago? Five, five years, I would say. So let's pretend you could now... Tell five years ago, James, three things before you really started getting serious about this. What are things that you know now that you wish you knew five years ago? Um, I guess so at that time, I think I would say don't worry too much about the fact that you're not getting as valuable playtesting as you want to because you never will. <laughs> interesting. It's, what do you, what it, do you mean by that? That's interesting. Um, I think it's it's a really big um, making a board game is a little bit different because you can provide somebody with everything they need to play that they can they can lay out in ten minutes and they can pack up in ten minutes. Um, right. A miniatures game is a much bigger commitment, and uh, and expecting people to play test it is a much bigger commitment. Um, yep. And so. Um, <clears throat> you will find there are lots and lots and lots of people who are really enthusiastic about playtesting your game until it actually comes to doing it. Um, yep. And so, uh, and I think it's it's easy to uh, as a sort of first time or, or pre-release um, designer to become disheartened by that and to take it personally and to think that it's you um, and that maybe your game isn't interesting or good enough or uh, or anything like that. And it isn't that at all. It's that when it's released and and there are thousands of people playing your game and you know you you actually make a living from it, you're still going to find it really hard to to get reliable play testers who are committed and who are you know committed to giving you regular high quality feedback yeah that that valuable feedback's got to be got to be difficult yeah um and uh so you felt like you would want to reset the expectations that you had back then um, yeah don't worry so much uh, about it. that yeah. yeah yeah okay that well that's interesting if you were now that you're doing your second kickstarter now um, and you're putting out your second game, though they are related, and we'll get into that. What are, what are things that you're doing this time that you'd wish you had done the first time? What are you, what are you getting right that you maybe didn't get quite as right the first time? I think it's the opposite. I think there are a bunch of things that I'm not doing this time uh, that I did the first time because the first time I didn't know what would go- what was going to work and what wasn't, um, and so I did everything, uh, and I burned myself out really yeah. hard. I didn't want to look at a computer or social media for two months afterwards. Um, and it wasn't a question of, of being, um, being, um, 
burned out on the project. I was just burned out on working really hard and, and on interacting with people on social media. Um, I, I delivered a month early, so that it, it wasn't a question of not wanting to follow through with the project. I was still really enthusiastic and excited about actually delivering the game. Um, but I just worked too hard, basically. And a lot of it was, a lot of it was meaningless nonsense and I didn't need to do it at all. Um, and it didn't help. Um, or it helped such a tiny amount that it wasn't worth the, you know, back to the cost benefit ratio thing. I mean, what I, what I would say also just from, from a commercial point of view is, um, you know, more advertising would have been great, but, but last time I didn't have the budget. So, Mm um, uh, it wasn't, I, I'd put, every uh, penny that I had available into developing the game and developing an entire product range of miniatures. Um, and so I didn't have any money to, uh, to put towards, uh, towards advertising. Maybe I could have just started with two factions um, and some extra models for those factions and um, spent some money on advertising. I still don't think that would be the right move. I still think that, that I was better off starting with four so that there was proper variety. Um, sure. In addition, the Kickstarter wouldn't have made as much money because something that I definitely didn't understand at the time was that way more people than you think were just going to say, screw it, I want everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's me, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I like uh, like uh, when I go to Kickstarter and I go, oh, this looks cool. I just scroll down to the bottom <laughs> and I start yeah. from the bottom and scroll up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Need, need, need. Uh, and so yeah. yeah, this time I understood that a little bit more. This time because I've also got a functioning business and you know we have a website and we sell through distribution and and I've actually got you know a regular income coming in from Drowned Earth sales. I was able to uh, devote some money to advertising uh, this time and. And it's and it was worth it. It's something that works. Um, so that's something. That's a bit of advice I would give myself that I wasn't really in a position to have taken advantage of. It's just it's just the position I'm in now, um, which is a bit different. Now, have you um, have you farmed out more this time than last time? So, for example, did you find something that you were doing yourself that you now have found people you're now ha- hiring people to do it for you? So. Um, uh, like, you know, things like, did, did, did you hire people to do the art in the first one and you're hiring people to do art in this one? Or were there things that you did the first time, either out of necessity or naivete that now you said, no, I can actually pay somebody to do it, um, for this second. Well, that's, that's what I've been promising myself all along, um, (laughs) that that I will stop doing everything and outsource more. So I've definitely, I've outsourced some of the, some of the social outreach and, uh, and, uh, contacting, um, influencers and, uh, social media and stuff like that. Uh, those are things that I've outsourced. I've done all the graphic design myself. I did, I did it the first, uh, you know, the whole project page I did, I did the video editing. Um, um, the video editing and filming, I edited the first video, um, and I was happy to edit the second. I wasn't happy to film the second. That's entirely, um, coronavirus related that I found myself in my living room with a DS, DLSR, uh, DS, uh, DLSR with a camera and uh, a camera <laughs> and uh, not able to get my friend, the professional cameraman to come and help me take footage. And also right. I didn't have a really good prototype of the game 
um, also coronavirus related to film um, because it's just been really hard. You know, supply lines have broken down and it, yeah. it's been, you know, everything's been delayed um, and getting, you know, you know, the, for the manufacturer to get the material has been difficult and then they've got delays. And, you know, if you're doing anything in China, obviously they've had their own, uh, all the factories were closed for two months and so they had a huge backlog. Um, and so sending out things like review copies was was very challenging. You know, we managed to do a few, but not many. Um, yeah. uh, but, um, I have ended up doing more things than I thought I was going to for that reason. Graphic design wise, I'm a competent graphic designer and I quite like doing it. And I'm a terrible control freak and think that I'll do a better job <laughs> <laughs> than, than the person that I could afford to employ. Uh, you know, I'm, there, there are definitely graphic designers out there who will knock my work right out of the park, but I probably can't afford them. Um, sure. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've ended up uh, outsourcing a little bit more this time than last time, but not as much as I would like, I guess. So out of curiosity, James, there, there was a moment when the last copy of Drowned Earth went out and you were completely fulfilled um, as far as your commitments on Kickstarter. What happened after that? Uh, what, were there challenges in supporting the game after delivery? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely, and that's another answer to the same question of what you what what um, uh, what would you do? Uh, what would you tell yourself uh, if you could, you know, go go through a little time machine or have a time telephone and have a conversation? Um, I after the first Kickstarter, really, it was a slightly different time. Games Workshop hadn't woken up and decided not to suck. Um, when I was uh, still making, uh, when I was making Drowned Earth, and then sometime between me um, finishing the Kickstarter and delivering it, they did wake up and, and decide not to suck, um, yep. which was a little bit of a blow. I think I would have I would have been doing a bit better um, had they. It would have been great that. if they sucked for a little uh, bit longer. Yeah, yeah, just just a bit. Just let me get my toe in the door. Um, but uh, I think my my initial plan was not to go back to Kickstarter, but to try to um, create strong relationships with traditional distribution channels. Um, and that has, that proved really hard, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I sort of naively thought that um, people would come knocking. And a few did. I, I had a, um, a, a French distributor approach me, a big one, um, and, uh, you know, initiate the relationship. And then I, I sent out some emails. I didn't want UK distribution because, uh, at that stage I realized sales were going to be small enough that, that, um, it, it wouldn't be advantageous for me to, uh, to do that. Um, now I do have a UK distributor and, uh, uh, in the U S as well, um, and in Europe, but I think that, it would have been more sensible for me to go back to Kickstarter sooner than I did. Um, because really the reason why distributors are interested in you is not because they think you've got a great product that they will be able to promote, but because you've got a product that you've promoted really well already that everybody wants to buy and they can make yeah. free money. Um, yeah. And uh, I th sort of felt like I, I would grow 
in a relationship with a distributor that that was going to take me by the hand and we'd make some money together. Um, And uh, I think part of that is also related to the Games Workshop not sucking um, thing, that my expectation was based on the way that the industry worked the year before I launched the Kickstarter, not the year after. And I think things changed at that time um, and people were much more risk adverse um, because Mm -hmm. overnight the independent uh, miniatures... uh, um, share of the industry halved. Um, yep. And so, you know, well-known games were going out of business. And so for little old me uh, to say, you know, why, why don't you uh, take a chance and start distributing my game and spend some money on promoting it to your customers? Um, that was a little bit um, unrealistic. Uh, I'm not sure I could have known, but you know, there it is. No, there's no way of knowing. And I can tell you, James, surviving that the way you did is a big deal. Um, so, you know, hats off to uh, the, the quality uh, of both your execution and the product, um, because to your point, a lot of much larger <laughs> game makers than you did not survive that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to to do to be a non GW miniatures game right now means you're and and being able to survive is 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 a big deal. Um, so for us as gamers, the the one upside to that is is that I think that um, even if you don't play GW anymore, they uh, they raise the bar, and I think that the the overall quality of gaming is better because of their renewed successes and their ability to. Uh, snatch victory out in the uh yeah uh, yeah I, well, I, I, I think there's two things i think actually the one of the reasons why they don't suck anymore is because the independent miniature scene has got so strong and started oh, making really great games and and, yeah. and and stole back and and stole a huge amount of their market share because they got lazy and complacent and were not doing you know the job right and now they after setting the bar so high and then having that bar exceeded while while, while you know their standards were dropping, they have now realised where the bar is and and, yeah. and started pitching back at it. And the other thing, which I think is really important about Games Workshop, and why why I'm not at all sad that they've woken up and started not not sucking anymore, is I'm not a gateway to our hobby. Uh, no nine year old kid is going to get enthusiastic about what I'm doing or ever even hear about what I'm doing. And Games yeah. Workshop still has a high street presence, and they still have a lot of reach, and they get people into our hobby who then eventually get bored of games workshop games and look at the independent miniature scene and 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 say there's some cool stuff going on there how about i'll dabble in that and lots don't and that's also fine but no i agree i mean games workshop will bring them in um then they'll realize that uh the quality of the rules matter and then they go play other games (laughs) well you can say that i i uh All right. So last question before we go to a break, I'd like to get an idea of maybe one place where you felt you just got lucky. Uh, so in the journey between uh, James does not uh, have a game on the market to James now has one game and is about to have another game on the market. Where do you think you got the luckiest where it was not necessarily you doing something right, but you just got lucky? Um, I feel I feel very lucky to have met the artists that I've met. Um, and I think that the the quality of the game, obviously, it, it comes down a little bit down to your 
you know, your as a creator, your curation of that art is is, right. is a big part of it. Um, but I think that it's much more difficult than people think. Even when you've got a fistful of dollars to actually get the right people to work for you, because in the art world, um, it's actually a seller's market. You know, yep. and they're, they're, there's lots of really talented people out there, but they're in serious demand. And it's not difficult to hire an artist, but it is difficult to hire a good artist. Um, and maintaining that level of quality and maintaining those relationships with artists is hard. And, and I've got some fantastic ones and I'm, I'm really grateful that they are willing to work for me. And that sounds <laughs> insane. That's like, what they, they don't like money. It's like, no, but the, no, a, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, um, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to do a small segment about Drowned Earth because I know there's some listeners um, that have actually maybe not seen the game or played the game, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, what Drowned Earth is and uh, kind of uh, give it an elevator pitch on why you maybe should be playing Drowned Earth. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, here on the third floor you'll find us playing Malifaux and other games on Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase Markle-compatible, and lighter than neoprene. These mats use a new material that almost eliminates any glare. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a design, then choose an overlay like the one for Marvel Crisis Protocol or Malifaux 3rd Edition strats and schemes. It's going to speed up your deployment and the placement of strategy and objective markers. Until the end of June 2020, you can use the new promo code THIRDFLOOR620 to get a 10% discount on your next order. In the notes, you can ask for the Third Floor Wars logo to be put on your mat for free. Again, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR620, that's T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R 620, to get a 10% discount. All the details are in the show notes. So now we've kind of set the table, James. We've, um, I think, given everybody a really good idea um, who you are from a uh, philosophical design perspective. Um, we've kind of gone through the process of going from I just create games to I sell games and I support games. Um, but I want to go back to Drowned Earth real quick because um, the more I've seen about it, the more I've heard about it, the more I've looked at it, uh, the more interesting the game gets. So someone listening right now has never played Drowned Earth. What are the the key things they need to know um, to decide whether they should be playing this game or not? Well, it's a skirmish scale alternate activation miniatures game, uh, which is character based. Uh, most of the models on your crew are going to be named characters with specific and unique, uh, or not necessarily unique, but specific skills, unique combinations of skills uh, and weapons, which allow your models to, uh, uh, to work together to achieve uh, different aims. Uh, you are playing on a fairly dense uh, board of probably waterlogged ruins, uh, overgrown lots of jungle uh, terrain. So uh, aquarium plants um, from eBay are definitely your friend as far as the scenery <laughs> building uh, is concerned. Uh, and it's uh, scenario based and, and very uh, cinematic, both in terms of the, the way that the scenarios are designed, but also the way that the mechanics lend themselves to, um, to that kind of cinematic action. 
Um, and so uh, I, I think the only other really important thing to say about it is uh, uh, you can have dinosaurs on your crew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and pirates now, too. Uh, and pirates as well now, yeah. yeah. So out of curiosity, um, just real quick, uh, first of all, how long does it take to typically uh, to play your typical game of, of Drowned Earth? So I've got all our, we, all our models are on the table. We start the clock. Um, how long is it going to take before the game ends? Uh, depends on points value. If you're playing with starter boxes only, which is five models aside, and I very intentionally made the starter boxes a full game, not not a kind of like here's a taste now, you know, like sure. the 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 drug dealer at the school gates kind of thing. <laughs> um, you can have a very full and satisfying game of Drowned Earth with just five models aside, uh, using what's in the starter boxes. That game will probably, depending on the scenario and depending on how um, whether one of you starts to win really quickly it'll probably take somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour okay um and when you get up to uh, let's say 120 or 125 points which is a more typical uh points value for uh for games um then it's probably going to take more like an hour and 20 to an hour and a half, something like that. It varies depending on model count. Um, some scenarios are quicker than other. There are six core scenarios in the rule book. Uh, and the other thing is that our tournament system um, is a little bit different to most uh, in the sense that you bring, a, you bring a model pool. That's not so different, but you are allowed to list build uh, differently for different scenarios because the different scenarios during the tournament uh, tournament are actually at different points levels so your first game might be 85 points your second game might be 110 well yeah, that's very that's something that uh is similar to malifaux and um something that i love about malifaux um and it's neat that that, that you have adopted that um so someone comes up to you and says you know i'm not sure whether i'd like drowned earth or not what are some games that they would be playing now that would tell you, yeah, you would definitely like Drowned Earth? So people that play what games would enjoy Drowned Earth in your mind? So, well, you've you've already said it. People have called Drowned Earth Infinity Light. Um, nice. And uh, I'm perfectly, some people think that that's a kind of pejorative, but I'm, I'm, no. perfectly, <laughs> I'm perfectly happy with it. Um, yeah. I, I think that the, 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 the Drowned Earth is still um, a very deep, tactical experience but just that you're spending more time looking at the battlefield than the rule book um so that's that's definitely um you know on 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 the roadmap um i guess i wouldn't say that the game um it being character based i think it reminds people of games like guild ball uh guild ball is much more about emergent gameplay from uh, skill synergies than Drowned Earth. Um, Drowned Earth is still quite a lot about the core mechanics um, and and the skills have a part to play. Um, it's also, it's more luck-based, I would say, than uh, uh, than Guild Ball. There are, there mm-hmm. are ways to uh, mitigate your luck and to offset that luck portion at the important times, um, but they are limited. Um, and so... Um, I guess I guess those are the the main ones that I would mention. So I'd be curious before we um, take another break and talk about the new game. Um, other than games you've designed, can you give me a handful of games? And it can be board games. What are games that right now you're really enjoying? Um, I'm a uh, massive fan of the Arkham Horror, the card game. 
Oh yeah. Um, that's really great. I've, I've, uh, <clears throat> borrowed some mechanics from that, uh, for the, <laughs> for the new game, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not at all ashamed of that. And I'm very happy to cite my influences. I don't, I don't see any problem with that. Um, so, uh, I'm also, um, I actually, I, I'm going to mention Pandemic Legacy actually as uh, one of the sort of uh, most engaging game experiences I've had, um, uh, you know, board game wise. Um, I play a fair amount of uh, Viticulture uh, with my other half. It's uh, it's a worker placement game about um, owning vineyards in Tuscany and uh and growing wine uh and it's a very sort of uh it's the sort of game that i'm normally not hugely keen on in this in the sense that it's a fairly dry euro game with uh that's all about you know there's no real conflict and it's all about sure. uh, you know building and making things but it there's just something very nice and and satisfying about it nonetheless um I like uh, Imperial Assault, uh, my mm-hmm. probably my favorite board game of all time that I never get out because it's an enormous time investment and an enormous investment in remembering how to play the damn thing, um, is the uh, War of the Ring, uh, the oh, old uh, Lord of the Rings yeah. war game, uh, board yep. game, not not the Games Workshop. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like small scale war game, but. I've never played it, and uh, but I've heard that it's a phenomenal game. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's and, really and immersive cool. as hell. Um, so uh, the last thing I'll ask uh, ask you, and you can decline to answer if you wish. What do you? Th- what is the one game that everybody loves that you've tried and just said, you know what? For whatever reason, I just don't like this game. Um. Oh, that that. Are- quite a few (laughs) (laughs) let's try one (laughs) yeah i'm just uh, like what's the sort of quintessential i don't get that but everybody likes it yeah a game that everybody talks about and likes and you tried it and it doesn't mean it's a bad game it just was it wasn't a game that you enjoyed yeah i mean i I think warhammer 40k is probably on my list although i have to say i haven't played the last eight edition i think it's pretty only in eighth edition but yeah i think i've seven editions have come out in the last year so right yeah (laughs) yeah I haven't played it for, for for a long time, but yeah, it's not my thing. So you 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 never were a forty k player then. You never went through that phase. Yeah, it's just something yeah, that- I did a little bit, but I think we we were always we you know we, as as kids in our early teens. Uh, we didn't have enough pocket money. <laughs> sure. And, um, you know, people talk about it being expensive now and they sort of, you know, oh, do you remember where they were all a pound a model? It's like, yeah, but a pint of beer was also a pound, you know, exactly. like yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it was still really expensive or it seemed really expensive at the time. Um, but yeah, I think we we mostly played Warhammer Fantasy um, and so we couldn't really afford to do both. Um, but, uh, I think for, for my games workshop, fondest memories really, uh, are all the, um, uh, the specialist games we, we were, we really liked, um, uh, we played space Marine, uh, the epic game, um, and, uh, a lot of blood bowl, uh, more latterly, eventually Necromunda. We played the, sorry, my, my cat is, uh, being demanding, um, 
we played the forerunner of Necromunda, which was called um, Confrontation, yeah. uh, which was over the course of a number of White Dwarf magazines given away for free. Um, mm-hmm. And then it later became uh, Necromunda. We had, a, we had a lot of like crazy and silly fun with that. That's an, If I had another time machine, I'd go back to that time in my life and try and tell my younger self that winning and losing... A bit caring too much about winning and losing really thematic games ruins the game and you will have much more fun if you just try and tell a really cool story yep i i could not agree more so james let's take one more break and we get back from this break i want to talk about the new game which is a uh sister game in the same world as drowned earth that's but a good way to put it yeah yeah all right so we'll be right back My name is Jacob Suderman, and my dad is a patron of the Third Floor Wars. I like the Third Floor Wars because the deep dives tell me a lot about a master, and when I get my second master, I'm going to use the deep dives to tell which one I want. Hey, you should be a patron too. Recently, we broke 100 patrons. I want to thank our most recent patrons, Marcus Moore, Dronex, Joshua Story, Peter Pot, Sergey Chapovalov, Superhottie69, Adam Talbot, and Richie Richmitten. Thank you. So, James, the reason I was able to trick you into coming on the show is that you have got a Kickstarter that, as when we release this, has got uh, uh, right about a week left before it closes out, and that's the uh, uh, Ulea Chronicles. Well, so actually, we're, 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 we've just finished out our first week, so we've, we've still got another three weeks to go, I think, just about. Right. I'm talking about when we release this, though. We're going to be oh, releasing. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're in a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're going to be releasing this about a week before it closes. Um, so talk to me about Ulea Chronicles. What if, um, if someone now has understood where you come from, they understand and get an idea of what Drowned Earth is, how do we transition them into saying, you may want to go check this out? Well, Ulea Chronicles started off as a, as a development project. It started off as an expansion to Drowned Earth, and it still functions as an expansion to Drowned Earth, but it is also, it just started to become its own thing. Uh, and it made sense to release it as a standalone product which has enough in the box that you can um, that you can use a lot of the stuff in the drowned earth and I'll explain a little bit more about that now but basically I think the the best way to put it um, is if I went back to to the start and took all of the mechanical ideas that that I wanted to make with the drowned earth but I instead wanted to make a solo and co-op game where you played against the game that's what Elia Chronicles is interesting so i didn't realize that so it's it's a cooperative game or it's a you it's a it's a you versus the game it's you versus the game yeah so you can you can play it solo you can play it with friends um but it's uh, it has the campaign structure of a dungeon crawler um so there's a whole series of narrative uh games which are threaded together by an overarching story it's a branching campaign so you will get to make choices 
both during the game and the games also the each individual scenario branches a little bit and i mentioned um uh, arkham horror the card game and we use a similar mechanic to uh to that in terms of car- a decks of cards which uh, uh which lead to the next card and then perhaps you've got a choice on the back of the card which gives you um uh you can swap up uh option number a or option number b and so there's different ways to play through uh that scenario uh, and then in between games you might have choices which end up resulting in you playing um scenario a instead of scenario b uh, and so there's a fair amount of replayability there you can go back and uh, and change it um uh, again, uh, you know, as you're going through uh, the game, making what, what I like to call meaningful choices. I think that's what games are, are, are about, really. It's interesting that you, um, you know, had had a typical skirmish game where you had one person playing another person, right? Now you're looking at um, having people playing together or by themselves. The hard part about that is coming up with an interesting opponent when the opponent is the game. So can you walk me through kind of the AI concept? Um, sure. And that's another thing. So earlier, I'll, I'll sort of before I answer that question, I'll, I'll sort of bring back something we were talking about earlier, where we were talking about design aims and 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 uh, in terms of uh, one one of the important goals being to remember your goals and to stick to them um and you know what is this game trying to do and it would have been very easy for me to to um uh grandfather in the entirety of of the drowned earth mechanics and just impose a bunch of ai stuff on them and really the reason why we ended up uh, moving away from it being an expansion to the Drowned Earth and it more being um, a standalone game that has a bunch of mechanics that you can import into the Drowned Earth um, is that I realized that there were a whole load of Drowned Earth things that just weren't doing, they were doing what I wanted Drowned Earth to do, but they weren't serving this goal of giving you a really interesting narrative and interesting gameplay experience as a solo or cooperative player playing against the game and so that was difficult it was like okay we're going to get rid of the movement i'd like i mean that's the key defining characteristic of the drowned earth we're we're, we're not going to do the dynamic movement and i thought yeah no we don't need to it's it's a game in a box uh, it's one purchase. It's got standees in it. You can replace the standees with miniatures if you're a miniatures gamer. If you're not, you don't need to. Um, it has a mat. It has beautiful scenery tiles by the by the same artist that did Imperial Assault, that did the latest science fiction nice. vers- uh, version of Zombicide. Um, wow. I'm really proud of them. They're, they're, they're stunning. Um, but back to the point, um, it was very important for me to present... Um, a lean experience that was doing what I wanted it to do and being being married to um, two different ideas, having this kind of um, AI and campaign structure while at the same time having this very dynamic cinematic movement experience type game. They just didn't gel together particularly yeah. well. Um and so, or at least they kind of did, but there was just more than there needed to be. So, um, for people that want both, 
uh, not necessarily the story part, but the AI part, I've designed it so that it can be imported uh, into the Drowned Earth. And the way that we've done that is uh, that we use uh, each enemy type has a deck of cards um, and each different species of dinosaur has a different deck of cards so that we program them with behavior which is characteristic and predictable but not random. If, if that is sorry, unpredictable, but not right. random, you can have a guess at what they might do because of the personality of that dino type until you flip the card. You obviously don't know. Interesting. So you talked about the Arkham horror, the card game having an influence, right? Is there any other AI out there that you've come across on, on the tabletop that you also maybe not, you know, that, that maybe inspired you? Um, where you said that's interesting how this game handles its AI. This is interesting. You know, where, where else did you find, um, nuggets that maybe, again, not that you used that mechanics, but you found it either well executed or inspiring. Um, and you see this as being, um, influenced by it. So there, there are, there are several and one of them, it's really terrible, but, uh, cause I can't remember the name of it, but there's an old, um, Actually, I don't even know if it's old. It's just an old style of game. Uh, a counter and hex World War II war game. And when I say war game, I mean war game in, in what board gamers call a war game, not, not what right. we miniature gamers call a war game. Um, and uh, it had a very smart AI system where, where it had programmed movement um, that you looked up in a book on a table, I think. And the... Um, the things that each of the different unit types did were very clever and they just worked. It was fiddly to use, um, uh, uh, but the effect was great. Um, mm-hmm. So you had, you know, is there somebody out, if there's an if-else type system, um, and, you know, I... It's it's an infantry unit. Is it out in the open? Is there anybody within range of it? Okay, then it sprints towards the nearest cover and tries to engage anybody in that cover. And is it an armored unit? Okay, well, it doesn't care about cover, so it just rolls out into the open and tries to get the best shot. It was really intelligently designed and it felt truly intelligent. Um, but you know, like you were just you were flicking through pages of a book and looking up on tables, sure. and it took a long time. It was unwieldy. Um, the other one that I like and the the um, the influence of giving each originally I had all of the dinos were controlled by a single dino deck well there were two actually ranged and, and close uh, combat and the way in which I was trying to impart the individual character of each species of dino was in the way that they um, was in their profile cards so basically there were there were um, action triggers on the cards and the specific action was on the profile card. And again, that was a little bit fiddly, but I was trying to run it all with a single deck mm-hmm. uh, for component um, limitation reasons. And uh, I, I pl- I've owned Gloomhaven since it came out and I've played, a f- I mean, I, I played less than 10% of what's in the box because sure. I could probably play it for a year and only get through a quarter of it. Um but it, that's what made me realize, hang on a minute, you only need 10 cards for each. You really like that game. Um, it has a controlled movement, programmed movement, but each uh, 
enemy type uses a different, or at least there are archetypes for, for each, um, uh, each deck is an archetype. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that just made me think, hang on, you don't need one big deck. You can have lots of little decks. And that means that each dino can have its own deck. That was, that was a, a great thing. Another one I looked at, which um, I don't think is as successful as I would like, but there was there were things in it which I found interesting, particularly in the way that the the, the instructions were presented. Is the app imp- implementation of Star Wars Imperial Assault, um, and I, the AI there does some weird things at times, and it's a little bit ambiguous. It's not always clear. You kind of have to go back to the rules and say, oh, hang on, sure. okay, so what, what's the priority? It wants to be four away from everyone, and what is that? And it can't. So which is it going to prioritize? Um, and, and things like that, which are just a little bit uh, confusing. And so, but there, there's some plenty of good stuff in there as well. So I think those are probably the three that I looked at the most. I also looked at the, um, uh, the Mantic walking dead game a little bit. Oh I think, yeah. Um, the, for me, the AI is a little bit, um, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit bare bones perhaps. Yep. And I think that works because it's zombies it's and zombies, they aren't yep. going to do like complicated or sophisticated stuff by nature. They're not intelligent. So it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be AI properly. Um, I think the uh, the turn order um, was a little bit uh, had a bit of an influence there, perhaps, uh, but not necessarily the instructions themselves. Gotcha. That's great. Well, James, I appreciate you coming on, man. It um, it's very exciting to uh, to really kind of get um, get the curtain pulled back and to and to understand uh, what this whole process is like. And uh, during the break, uh, one of the first things I said to James is, uh, son of a bitch is going to make me buy his game because there's some, <laughs> you said a lot of things that got me excited and interesting. And I was also telling James that, um, you know, one of the things that's probably the biggest benefit of doing this podcast is I now have kind of a pool of people whose opinions I trust. And uh, really kind of the reason I think that James and I ended up with connecting is because I kept hearing everybody talking about Drowned Earth. And now I kind of got a better idea of why. So James, we're going to have links to the um, to the Kickstarter um, in, in the uh, show notes, uh, so the people can reach out. They can also obviously search for um, the Ulaya Chronicles. That's U L A Y A. It's also in the title of the podcast episode as well. Um, James, is there any other last things that uh, people should know before we wrap up? Um, I mean, I think that more or less covers it. The the Drowned Earth as a game uh, is available to buy uh, right now. We'll also, if you're not desperate for things tomorrow, uh, you'll be able to, if you back the Kickstarter, Alaya Chronicles, then um, a lot of the components and things that you need for Drowned Earth are um, in the core box as well. The miniatures are all backwards compatible, so we're going to be releasing nice. profile cards for all of them um and even uh, we we might by the time people are listening to this we might have um unlocked some of the alpha profiles um which will ship these are uh dino types that are not in the Olya chronicles box that you but you might want to use to ramp up the difficulty or to add some variety or you might want to use them in your drowned earth games um when you buy that alpha sculpt 
for an existing dino type, it will come with the AI deck for that dino Very type, nice. as well as the profile cards for both games. So there's a lot of backwards compatibility there. The Drowned Earth rules are free to download from our website. Um, obviously, the hardback book has uh, all of the fluff and a special rules chapter and mounted models and uh, lots of cool extra stuff. But you can get going uh, with the full rules uh, completely uh, free um so yeah come and join us we've got a fantastic community uh, on facebook there's a very lively discord channel probably the thing that somebody asked me what i'm the most proud of and actually it it isn't the game it's the community that surrounds the game great to be a part of oh well i think it, the community can be very telling james um uh it's something that with malifaux that uh kept me loving the game so much is that uh, it's one of the highest quality community i've come across yeah. Um, and I think it's a reflection of the game itself. So I think being proud of the community um, is is a, um, a way to be proud of what you've created. So, all right, James, thanks so much. And uh, for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right, that was good, bud. Excellent. That was good. Excellent. And we kept it right at an hour and a half. I like it. Good stuff. I'm going to end up buying your stupid game. <laughs> Well, I, I, I do feel like I, I talk to a lot of very smart people who've never heard of it and they play it and they're like, this is great. Why isn't, why isn't this better known? Um, and I think the answer is really simple. It's because it's just me and it's really hard yeah, it's to small. make yourself yeah. heard well, over, the, over the din of everything else. And marketing is, is really tricky. Yeah, it is. And it, it, um, you know, for me, my, the biggest, the most constraining resource I have is time. Yeah. Um, but because I do this podcast, I there I have now got a stable of about ten people who I have spent enough time with that I know that if they like something, that I'll like it. Yeah. Um. So they've become my curators. Yeah. And yeah. the two games that have now 
caught wildfire among that pool of people is you and God Tier are the right. two games yep. that I hear about the most. Um, and I, so. I still haven't. I've got a whole load of metal God Tier models um, because um, uh, a very close friend of mine was operations manager for Steam Forged for for quite a while. Um, now he works for Element Games, which which is the company that distributed uh, um, right. uh, uh, um Guild Ball uh, to begin with, uh, but I've never done anything with them, and I've never played it. And I'm, I, I can't. I'm, I, I, uh, the I same with time. Marvel as well. I'm really eager to play that, um, but I've I've spent so long, all of my gaming time, really recently, other than board games. Um, I have two regular board gaming sessions yep. every week. Um, both of them are just taken up by. I, I mean, other than that, all of the rest of my gaming time is just taken up by playtesting. It has to be. No, yeah. I, I totally yeah. get it. Yeah, I um, yeah, got here at some point. I got to try it, um, and I got to try Drowned Earth. Um, and if you get a chance, don't buy it. Don't buy it. But if you get a chance to play the Marvel game, it's a good game. It's mm. not a great game. Yeah, but it's a really good game. Yeah. And the reason I think you might be interested in it is it sacrifices a lot for fun. Yeah. Which which I really appreciate. Yeah. Like yeah. It, you know, the most strategic games I've ever played were never Marvel Crisis Paul protocol mm. but in the last two years some of my most fun had was playing marble crisis yeah. protocol yeah so um all right i'll bring us back all right so this will be the last last segment that we talk about um uh the design process after this when we get into dra- the drowned earth segment um a lot of it we've actually covered already um, so that might be a short segment because we've sure. ended up talking a lot about more about Drowned Earth than I thought we would, though it's yep. been good. Um, and that will give buy us more time to talk about uh, Ulea. So perfect. Cool. And we'll keep this short too. This is a this will be a short segment. Sure. That was excellent. Excellent, good. excellent. Good. Yep. All right. It's actually quite nice to talk about Drowned Earth a little bit because, of course, I've been uh, I've been talking mostly about Elijah Chronicles, which is more or less the same game, but I, it, it's being marketed as a separate title. It's a simplification, um, and uh, you know, it's important to me that it's a standalone game and and, and a kind of pick up and play as well. Um, yeah, and kind of my thought was, um, I mean, people people know you from Drowned Earth; they don't know you from the new Kickstarter. So, and I think what what we'll do is we're in the first couple segments, we'll build credibility, get people excited to go. You know what? I, I kind of dig what, how this guy thinks. Yep. Then we'll dock drowned earth, which is an established game. And then we'll spend the last 15, 20 minutes talking about the new game. Um, and I cool. think progressive wise for the audience, for somebody who's not familiar with any of it, it'll yeah. kind of take them. Take yeah, them no, through the story. I, I, that's exactly my approach. I feel like, I feel like the first title is the one to talk about. And particularly yep. since it's kind of, it's the parent game of the Kickstarter that I'm selling good. now, so to speak. Good, good, good. All right. I'll bring us back. Sure. About really. Um, and Pumpkin, you want to say say hi yep. to James real quick? Sure. Hi. Hello. How are you? <laughs> We're almost done, so I'm, I'll come back downstairs in about ten minutes. Okay. We're almost finished. Do you do you, do you ask James where he lives? Uh, do you live in London? I do That's live in England. Yeah. <laughs> I live in London. Does he sound like he lives in London? I can't hear him because I think it's because of my hair. 
No, you're you're right. You're good. All right, honey. I'll be down in about 10 minutes, okay? I love you. Did we lose James? Or... Can you talk for a second? Yeah, James? I'm still here. Okay, I can hear you. Yep. Okay, good. Um, I'll be down. Would you, um, are, what do you want? Are you watching TV? Okay, I'll be down in about 10 minutes. You want a what? A burrito? Well, we're going to do Taco Tuesday. I know. If you want to go grab some fruit snacks, you can grab some fruit snacks. All right, I'll be right back. Sorry about that, man. No problem at all. It's the, the beauty of post-editing, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, so you got, we just got done talking about kind of the cooperative nature of it. Um, what, are some, um, what are some key things that we want to make sure we cover here? Um... So I think I was, ta- I was talking about the branching, uh, the, the branching structure of the campaign. That's kind of important. Yep. The uh, card mechanic uh, that drives the AI. So all uh-huh. of the dinos have a little AI deck. Uh, Let which- me ask you an AI question because sure. that was actually one thing I was thinking about. Yep. So, all right. So James, I, 